we're back for the second episode of season three. You've had a you've had a really relaxing last few days, haven't you? <laughs> you know perfectly well that I have not. Uh, I should explain to everyone that uh, that deceptively simple question is a reminder of the horrors that we endured on Sunday evening. Ollie and I were being streamed live on YouTube for a Sunday evening service uh, when a power cut plunged my house into darkness. So. I had to drive a considerable speed to my sister's house so that I could conduct our interview from there. And it was an unbelievably stressful experience. I have to say I was very impressed at uh, the fact that you managed to make it to your sister's house in time for the interview. I was literally about to ask Jim our very first question. And then he disappeared off the screen and was sitting in darkness in his house. But in the end, it it worked out, which was a relief. Uh, We managed to keep the thing going. Yeah, uh, power eventually was restored later on Sunday evening, but what it then did was it triggered a strange little bleeping noise in my house, uh, which went off every 15 minutes, and it still does this at the moment. It it drove me completely mad. I spent hours prowling around my house looking for the source of this bleep, and eventually, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was crawling through my roof space, and I found this ancient burglar alarm that I have never used. And I was scared of setting this stupid thing off, so I've had to call an electrician. He's coming tomorrow night to disconnect the system. Now, just in in the unlikely event that an enterprising burglar is listening to this podcast, I should say I have one of those, um, you know, security systems in the house that uploads video to a cloud. Um, but anyway, it has not been a re- a relaxing week. That sounds that sounds very high tech, Jim. I'm impressed. That sounds like a a system that I wouldn't want to try and uh, I wouldn't want to try and break into your house or that kind of thing in place. Sounds like Fort Knox. Um, <laughs> impressive. Season three, Jim, um, has been about the basic building blocks that make up our culture, or that's what it's going to be about anyway. Uh, last week we focused uh, on the rise of the modern self, um, and this week we're going to think about social justice. So the concept of social justice has evolved a lot over the past 200 years. And today, the conversation about social justice is dominated by an ideology called critical theory, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of. Um, Maybe they're familiar with, maybe they're not, but hopefully this episode will uh, provide a little bit of light on what it actually is. Um, But let's get underway by thinking historically about the concept of social justice. What are some of the main issues at stake in this area, Jim? Social justice is all about balancing the rights of the individual against our responsibilities to our community. So it raises the most basic questions about the intrinsic dignity of every every individual and how deeply we should care for the welfare of others. So think of that ancient biblical command to love thy neighbour as thyself. That has to be interpreted in a complex society like ours. Should we have a welfare state? Uh, should the needs of a society outweigh the rights of the individual? Uh, or should the state be you know, a minimalist thing that just allows individuals to get on with their lives? What are our responsibilities to care for the oppressed and the marginalised people in society? So those are the sorts of issues that need to be considered within the scope of the term social justice. Tim Keller recently published an article on social justice, and I'll add a link to that article in our website. I I found it um, really helpful. It was a very enlightening article. I'd really encourage all our listeners to read it. Uh, And in that article, he draws a diagram which represents a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, there is the individual. And at the other end of the spectrum, there is society or the collective. 
And Keller basically uses that spectrum to plot out the main political theories that tackle the issue of social justice. Yes, it's a really helpful introduction to the problem. And Keller describes four main theories that um, run from uh, the right of your spectrum to the uh, which represents the individual to the extreme left, which represents the collective we call society. So at the individual end of the spectrum, you get this thing called libertarianism. Uh, and that's the position described in the philosophies of, of Locke and Hume. And they basically define justice as freedom. Okay, so libertarians believe that the outcomes of anyone's life depends wholly on their individual choices and efforts. The state's job is simply to maintain my freedom of speech, property, and religion. The state should let me pursue happiness as I, as an individual, define it. So um, uh, think of some rural farmer in the deep south of the U.S. pointing his shotgun at a member of the FBI who has ventured onto his land, you know, and he says, you feds have no right to interfere with my freedom. You come around here taking my money to build your welfare programs and other socialist nonsense. Now, get off my property before I exercise my Second Amendment rights. That's an example of a libertarian. I really wish you'd tried the accent there, Jim, to be honest. I was <laughs> I was disappointed that you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> So w would it be right to say that libertarianism doesn't really care a lot for the biblical command to love your neighbor? Um, and it also denies the fact that social forces can actually trap people in poverty. Exactly right. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you get Marxism. And in Marxist thought, individuals serve the needs of the collective. In fact, the individual is seen as the product of social forces and structures. So justice in Marxist theory is seen through the lens of revolution. It reduces to a power struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor. Now, the thing we call critical theory emerges from Marxism. So we're going to leave Marxism for now because it will form the foundation of the conversation we'll have in a few moments about critical theory. In Keller's model, there are two other big theories that sit in between the extremes of libertarianism and Marxism. And one of those is called liberalism. And liberalism sees social justice as fairness. Is that right? Yeah. Liberals ask us to perform the following thought experiment. Uh, they say, suppose you had to design the perfect society, but you didn't yet know whether you would be born into poverty or into wealth and privilege. So what sort of a society would you design? Okay, now it's a very interesting thought experiment. Uh, liberals believe in market economies, so in that sense they're still individualistic, but they also argue that the state has a responsibility to redistribute some wealth through taxation. So liberalism aims not for equal outcomes, but for equal opportunity for individuals to achieve their happiness. Instinctively, that seems much closer to the biblical view of social justice than the two more extreme views. Is that a fair observation? Well, I tend to think of liberalism as a, a car engine, and it works while it has the fuel of Christian values driving it. Okay, So liberalism is still quite individualistic, but it worked really successfully in, in societies like America and in Britain. Because any, in self, any selfishness was offset by the sense of community solidarity and neighborly responsibility that emerged from the Christian worldview. Now, unfortunately, the fuel tank in the West is almost empty. We're driving on the fumes of Christian values these days. So liberalism is already becoming a harsh survival of the fittest type thing. You know, greed is good. In a Christian culture, a market's just a device to manage complexity. But in a materialistic world, Capitalism becomes an expression of social Darwinism. Keller's last category is a political theory known as utilitarianism. 
And here, justice isn't just about freedom or fairness. In fact, it's about happiness for the most people. So I can do whatever I want in the pursuit of happiness, provided that I don't harm anyone else. And the majority of people in society decide what's harmful and what is good. Yes, there, there are two obvious problems with utilitarianism. First of all, it smuggles in a materialistic worldview. So happiness is defined in purely material terms. But more worryingly, the majority can simply decide what makes them happy. Well, I don't need to remind you that in the 1930s, the majority of people in Hitler's regime decided that it would make them happy if some other people were sent to concentration camps. So like all the other theories of justice, there's no foundation for moral values. Okay, so that was a very quick overview of how people historically have thought about social justice. Some people define social justice as freedom, others as fairness, others as happiness, and others as a struggle for power. It's fair to say, I think, that many young adults today are attracted to the left of Tim Keller's spectrum. They conceive of social justice in terms of a power struggle between oppressed groups and an oppressor. In the language of the progressive left, it is fashionable to view social justice through the lens of critical theory. So we want to spend the rest of our time, Jim, discussing this important ideology. So to begin with, then, what is critical theory and how should Christians respond to it? Okay, I'm going to make two main points about critical theory, and then I want to criticize it for three reasons. So that gives us a total of five, okay? Now, before we critique the theory, let's just understand what it is. And critical theory says that the world is unjust because every society is structured the same way. There's always an oppressor, and then there are oppressed minority groups on the margins of society. Now, back in the days of classical Marxism, the oppressed uh, were the proletariat workers, and the oppressors were the bourgeoisie fat cats who controlled the means of production. But today, the oppressor, we are told, is the white heteropatriarchy, and the oppressed groups are women, black people, and the LGBT community. Sometimes Muslim communities and disabled people are treated as oppressed people as well. And I think it's important to say that there is truth here, isn't there? The claim that minority groups have been oppressed throughout history, you know, there's validity to that. And obviously, the main example would be the enslavement of black people, particularly in the United States. Other groups, including Christian communities, have been marginalized for centuries in some cultures. Yes, it is really important that we acknowledge that there is, in fact, a great deal of truth in critical theory. In fact, one of my main arguments against it is that it is too shallow an analysis. I think the problem of structural oppression is much deeper than critical theorists will allow, but we'll get to that later. For now, I agree that quite a lot of history can be seen through the lens of oppression. But there are a couple of features of critical theory that we need to think about more deeply. And the first is that critical theory reduces social justice to a struggle for liberation. You do get the sense from those who adhere to critical theory that liberation is the only moral virtue in the world. Exactly. I mean, think of, um, think, think of moral virtues like honesty or kindness or chastity or modesty or civility or being faithful to your marriage partner. Now, it's not just that those virtues are ignored by critical theorists. Often, those sorts of values are described as oppressive, as instruments of oppression. There are, are ideas, we are told, imposed by white heterosexuals to maintain their power over society. And that doesn't just seem right to me. It's surely too simplistic to reduce all of life to a struggle of liberation from oppressive norms. 
There can be no excuse for fulfilling the moral duties laid down for us in the Bible, no matter what our position in society is. So that was the first thing. The second observation I would make about critical theory is that it redefines oppression. Most of us instinctively think about oppression uh, as imposing economic hardship on others or uh, enslaving them or imprisoning them for no cause. In other words, we define oppression in terms of bad behaviour and wicked actions. But in today's world, oppression is now psychological. Okay, If I don't support your right to inner happiness, then I am oppressing you. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really crucial point, Jim. Um, and, the, and the conversation we had last week about expressive individualism and the rise of the modern self is key to understanding what is going on at the heart of critical theory. We only have to think about the language of microaggressions or the demand that sexualized identities be affirmed and celebrated to see that the concept of oppression has actually morphed into something very different from its historic meaning. Yes, even silence or a refusal to applaud is now interpreted as an act of oppression. Now, rather than just mock that idea, I think we need to be gracious enough to understand why it is believed today. Okay, And the key person in the whole story is Sigmund Freud, because he took the basic narrative of the what's called the social binary, the oppressed and the oppressor, and he applied it to sex. He said that society repressed our authentic sexual desires. In fact, he argued that most of civilization came about because we repressed our deepest and our darkest sexual desires. And then philosophers like Herbert Marcuse uh, took Freud and applied his ideas to critical theory. Marcuse wrote a famous book called Eros and Civilization that made the point you have just made, Ollie. When a, a member of the LGBT community sees me refusing to affirm their sexualized identity, they see me as a member of an oppressive regime, a, a systemized power structure that uses language to impose its norms and its values and its expectations on minority groups such as the LGBT community. And by labeling them as deviant, for example, is the language they would use, uh, cisgender males are driving them to the margins of society, and that is deemed to be oppressive. And the Bible itself comes into this, doesn't it? Because it's regarded as an instrument of oppression, because it's a grand story, a narrative that essentially speaks universal truth to everyone, and it defines what healthy human flourishing actually looks like. And so it's seen as having a controlling narrative, and it's also then seen as an instrument of oppression. That's exactly right technical term used in critical theory is hegemony. Uh, and the Bible is regarded as a hegemonic narrative because it takes a position on human flourishing. In fact, God himself is seen as the ultimate oppressor. That's why the charge that God is a cosmic tyrant has gained so much traction in our society. Yeah, and it's so helpful to see the kind of the thought process or the ideology that underpins um, that idea of God being a, a cosmic tyrant. Okay, so, so you've made two points about critical theory. Uh, firstly, it reduces social justice to a struggle for liberation, and it redefines oppression psychologically, turning anyone who doesn't support my inner happiness into an oppressor. You mentioned earlier that you had three main criticisms of critical theory. What, what are they? Okay, my first big criticism is that it undermines human dignity. I was reading an article recently about a, a kick-up that occurred in the United States in 2015. It was after a Supreme Court ruling that extended the right to marry to same-sex couples. Uh, the case was called Obergefell versus Hodge. Uh, and a dissenting opinion was written by a conservative judge called Clarence Thomas. 
and it caused a storm in the media. Uh, The supporters of equal marriage had argued that the case was all about human dignity, and dignity, they said, was based on the right to choose. Okay, But Thomas argued that dignity is neither given to us nor taken away from us uh, by other people. And he gave the example of slavery, the example of an innocent man who is enslaved. Even in his chains, says Thomas, the enslaved man retained his dignity. Now, he had been robbed of his freedom and of his respect, but dignity has always been regarded as an immutable thing that is derived from a human being's intrinsic moral worth. Now, the progressive left went nuts when Thomas made that argument. They argued that slaves had been robbed of their dignity because they had lost the ability to choose. Now, that is a hugely important idea. It goes right to the heart of many of these issues. It also, their idea happens to be profoundly anti-Christian. Because in biblical thought, human dignity is derived from our intrinsic moral worth as creatures made in God's image. But for the progressive left, human dignity comes from our ability to make choices. So, an unborn child, or an elderly person with dementia, they have less dignity than either of us, apparently, because they don't have the ability to choose. But in the context of critical theory, dignity is something that can be taken away by other people. Okay, Now, you can summarize that conflict uh, like this. The progressive left sees human dignity, if you like, as a horizontal thing. The amount of dignity I have depends on how other people treat me. But for the Christian, human dignity is a vertical thing. My dignity comes from the immutable value that God has bestowed upon me as a creature made in his image. Now, here's a critical point. Critical theory undermines human dignity because it defines my dignity purely horizontally in terms of how other people treat me. In fact, when you actually watch how the progressive left behaves, you see that they really believe that their dignity is something that you and I can give to them or take away from them. So when I refuse to affirm a same-sex marriage, for example, I'm accused of robbing people of their dignity. Now, contrast that with the Christian worldview. (laughs) I was reading yesterday, the Apostle Paul could say that he was regarded as the scum of the earth. But that horrible truth never affected his self-worth. He stood on the rock of biblical anthropology. He knew why he was valuable. But critical theory insists that society should be the convection current that keeps us aloft. You know, society has to be the wind beneath our wings. And if we don't offer that support, then dignity crashes to the ground. That's really, really helpful, Jim. And and it explains a great deal of the confusion Christians experience when they're asked to affirm sexualized identities. What we don't realize is that the underlying issue is actually a fragile sense of self-worth. So it's really important that we make clear that We respect every member of society on the basis of their intrinsic moral worth. We should emphasize the enormous dignity of any creature made in God's image. So what's your second criticism of critical theory then, Jim? Yeah, well, let me just underscore the point you've just made. Uh, Whenever you're talking to someone from uh, the progressive left, it is crucial that you remind them that you believe they have enormous dignity. You just disagree with their philosophy. You're not attacking their dignity. You're just disagreeing with their philosophy. Okay, so that was the first point. The second criticism that I would have of critical theory is in some ways the most fundamental. Critical theory undermines truth. It's very common to hear the left talk about um, lived experience and how lived experience trumps any rational argument. 
Now, they can say that because they don't really believe in truth. And in a world without truth, there is only power. The basic idea here is that the way things really are is only accessible to the oppressed. Their position as oppressed people allows them to read the world. Now, that makes the views of the oppressed immune from criticism. They are literally unfalsifiable because, we're told, the privileged suffer from false consciousness. So, as a white man, my perception of reality is distorted by my privilege. So the oppressed can make demands, but they need not make any arguments. Since the whole system, including basic rationality, is rigged against them. They are above the law, since the law is a product of privilege. I think it was the author of a book called White Fragility who said, The idea that objectivity is best reached through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking. Now, that has just taken us straight into the heart of Gnosticism. And how should we respond to a claim like that one? Well, it's very simple. You just point out that it is self-refuting. To say all truth claims are bids for power, which can never be rejected, well, that itself is a truth claim. So it's just a bid for power. So, of course, we should reject it. The thing is self-refuting. Yeah, I know. That's, that's helpful. Um, you've argued that critical theory effectively undermines human dignity and the truth, which is a very serious charge. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately for, for critical theory, it's something that, um, you know, surely effectively undermines it as a, as a worldview. <laughs> you know, those are, those are some really serious criticisms. I'm interested to know what your final criticism is. Yeah, well, my final criticism is that I, I regard critical theory as a shallow religion that offers no hope. Okay, now that's not, that just sounds like a cheap shot, but consider how close critical theory is to a religion. It has a doctrine of original sin, the thing called white privilege. It has a works-based salvation that condemns white men like you and me to a life of permanent penance. It has a moral vision to make the world better. That's a good thing, of course, but that moral vision, remember, has no foundation. Because when you ask a critical theorist, why ought we change society? Why must we overthrow white oppression? Why is it our moral duty to liberate the oppressed? There's only silence. Why? Because if naturalism is true, then white men are just better survivors than black women. Tigers are more powerful than gazelles, so why blame them for being tigers? Of course, that's a hateful thing to say, but that's where naturalism takes you. So the religion of critical theory isn't just uh, it's shallow because it has no moral foundation. But the second thing I said was that it is hopeless. Because critical theory is a religion without atonement. It cannot offer forgiveness or reconciliation. All that there can be is an endless power struggle. And I, I really mean endless. Because once one oppressed group takes over, it immediately becomes the oppressor. And so the whole cycle must start again. All critical theory can do is change the actors who assume the roles of oppressed and oppressor. And that is a desolate religion, isn't it? So those are the three big reasons, Ollie. Uh, it undermines human dignity. Critical theory undermines truth. And it is a shallow religion that offers no hope. Excellent, Jim. We've spent a lot of time today analyzing the wrong views of social justice. 
Um, but as Christians, we are confident that there is a right view of social justice. And to find out what that right view is, to understand what that right view is, we need to spend time studying the scriptures to get a well-rounded biblical view of justice. And that's not just Paul, but also the likes of Amos and Isaiah and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We we serve, we worship a God who cares deeply about justice. But as you say, Jim, uh, it's so vital that we have the correct view of justice that ultimately leads to genuine human flourishing. But it's been a real, a really helpful conversation today. I've really enjoyed it, Jim. I think um, it speaks into so much of what is going on in our culture at the moment. Um, so thank you so much for all the time and energy you put in to uh to looking at that with us and i really do hope that that beeping noise in your house is brought to an end swiftly well at the moment i'm wearing headphones and i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty con- convinced i'm going to continue to wear headphones for the next 24 hours <laughs> do you know until- what i actually heard it in the background the odd time i picked up a little beeping <laughs> i thought my phone was going off or something i was like oh no and then i realized ah it's the it's the alarm in jim's house <laughs> It's exactly every 15 minutes, and then there's a 30-second pause, and then it goes off again. And when you're trying to sleep, it just, oh. it just sets my stress levels through the roof. It's a form of torture, that. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. But anyway, thanks so much for your time, Jim, and we'll speak again next week. Thanks, Ollie.